So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. And our guest today is Dr. Adi Jaffe. And Dr. Jaffe is coming to us. Um, you're on the West Coast. Is that right, Dr. Jaffe? I'm in Los Angeles in La La Land. Yeah. So we're um, still uh, held up in um, Nashville in our homes. And, um, and I'm assuming you're uh, quarantined or sheltering in place or whatever we're calling it out there and hope you all are safe and well. Um, We're, uh, you know, we're definitely sheltering and it's definitely a bizarre experience and it's definitely taken its toll over the last couple of months, but I'm also blessed in a million different ways. So yeah, I never want to complain about what's happening right now. Right. Uh, We can't, my hearts go out to the families that are severely affected by this, whether that's because of employment or just real health concerns and deaths. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, we don't want to ever miss our gratitude and our opportunity to experience, practice it, live it. Um, yeah. So, so Dr. Jaffe, you're, uh, you are a uh, speaker, author of a best-selling book that is uh, The Abstinence Myth, which I want to talk about. Um, and you have an ignited uh, podcast. You spell it I-G-N-T-D. Um, uh, which I think is really cool. And you've got ignited recovery, um, which is kind of a modality that I want to hear more about as well. (laughs) Yeah. You're holding up your mug. I've got the coffee mugs, the hats, (laughs) all about it. That's great. Um, and, and the thing that intrigues me, uh, so much about your work is that it's, it's a little, uh, less, uh, conventional than what we've learned as recovery work in the last, sure. you know, 80 years. We have a, uh, uh, we have a, for, for many people, we have a, a plan that's, you know, 80 years old or something. Um, and not that that's not tried and true and working for some people, but there are a lot of ways that it um, has maybe not, that maybe we've missed some people. And uh, maybe people that I call 12-step averse in mm. my practice. And so yeah. I'd love to hear, first of all, I'd love to hear your story. How did you come into the world of recovery, the need for recovery, um, all of that? Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you the Cliff's notes because I really want to get into the solution. But um, right. I, um, I'm an ex-meth addict. Mm-hmm. Um, I also struggle with intimacy issues and sex addiction at different points in my life and my relationships. And... I recovered initially in a very traditional way. So I got arrested. Uh, It was recommended I go to rehab in order to really, honestly, to have a better outcome with my case. I was facing a decade and a half or two in prison. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of drugs, a lot of drug dealing. I was a 
for five years, I was a de- um, daily heavy meth user. And that came on the heels of high, high alcohol and marijuana use. So I was one of those like kitchen sink strugglers. Um, mm-hmm. I hated my feelings. I wanted to not feel them. I wanted to numb out as often as I could and as, as seriously and intensely as I could. And it worked until it didn't. I got arrested and uh, got sent to rehab. And I, it, you know, this isn't going to come as news to anybody, but it was actually really hard to swallow the initiation into the, I'll call it kind of 12-step indoctrination. And by that, I mean the whole idea that every time before I spoke, I had to call myself an alcoholic or an addict, depending on which meeting we went to, mm-hmm. and the admitting powerlessness and all those pieces to the, of the puzzle. I relapsed in that first rehab, um, used while in rehab for two months, then got kicked out, used for another month or so out on my own while I was looking for a new solution. And um, I, I give a more detailed story on a weekly workshop I give. So if anybody cares, uh, they can come to that or any of the other uh, online places where I've told my story. But by the time it came to going to the second rehab, I'd had this awakening in the middle. And the awakening was pretty basic. And it was, I need to stop running for my truth. I need to be accountable for my actions. Nobody else can help me if I don't pick myself up. and and honesty came in a, in a big way into that equation for me. And so found the next place, managed to stay sober there for eight months while I was fighting the case. Then I had to serve a year in jail, and which was amazing considering what I was looking at initially. So I did my year in jail, stayed sober through that. And when I came out, um, I was looking for any way to continue a regular life. Um, if any listeners have ever been to jail, especially for felonies, you know how hard it is to pick yourself back up. I couldn't get a job, couldn't get hired at the mall, couldn't do anything. And so the only option I saw in front of me, because I, my parents were paying my rent, it was, um, mm-hmm. I was incredibly lucky for it, but I wanted to get out from under it. So the only option I could find was going back to school, which was something I had sworn off of. Um, mm-hmm. Hated school, was good at it in terms of taking tests and things, but I hated school, but it was literally, there was no option. So I went back to school. Uh, got my master's in psychology. And weirdly, in this transformation, I had somehow become a 4.0 straight A student. I was highly motivated. I was the guy now setting up the study sessions instead of ditching class. I was staying after and asking questions. And I found my groove and I kind of found a way to behave in life again. Still no idea what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. But then I started doing research with a, an advisor. This is a Cal State Long Beach um, in my master's program. And just by chance, he was doing research with homeless HIV uh, drug users. Mm -hmm. And I found that I really liked the work. I liked sitting there and talking to them and asking the questions. I liked doing the research. And so I dove in more and more deeply, got my first job finally after after being out uh, out of jail. And... Since then, this is 2004, about when I'm describing this. Since Mm -hmm. then, I've been on just this mission to help with the addiction problem. And I left AA myself in the middle. I was learning so much in psychology and the things that I was learning in school just did not jive with the things that I was told in rehab. It was actually very bizarre to me, Mm. the departure from what we were told in psychology can help people in in my situation and what was given to me on the ground. and I kept studying. I ended up being fortunate enough to be able to get into UCLA's uh, PhD psychology program, which is like the number one program in the world. Mm-hmm. 
continued my research in addiction, but now focusing on neuroscience and things in the brain and things of that nature. Um, and I, I made it my mission to kind of solve addiction. That's the way I looked at what I wanted to do. And so seven years of school was really passionate about it, did really well at UCLA, kept publishing research, started writing for psychology today and other publications talking broadly about addiction. And then I made a discovery when I was in my postdoc, which is kind of two, three year period after you finish your PhD where you're working, but kind of still trying to understand exactly the trajectory you're going to go in. Mm -hmm. And I found a number that shocked me. And that number was the fact that 90% of people who struggle with addiction don't get help. Mm -hmm. And I remember the reason I even found it out was I had a website called all about addiction where I was trying to create this way to help people find treatment. And it wasn't until I looked at what, uh, what is missing to help people find treatment and the SAMHSA treatment locator was the only thing that existed at the time. And it was terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized, Oh my God, nine out of 10 people who struggle with addiction, never go get help. Mm-hmm. And it left me kind of questioning everything that I'd been doing up until that point, because who cared if I, if I was able to help find a better solution for addiction, mm-hmm. nobody is going to get help. So mm-hmm. I switched from, hey, how do we find better solutions to how do we get more people to want to even get help? Right. And you asked about how did I get into the field? And this is an explanation of not only how I got into the field, but also why my viewpoint is so different than a lot of other people's. I started studying why do people not go get help? And we found four main reasons. There's a fifth one that comes out of the literature if you look at it. Costs and logistics were huge. Mm-hmm. We don't have to tell people, right? Getting addiction treatment um, is expensive. And then telling somebody or your boss, you got to leave for 30, 60, 90 days to go get help. Mm -hmm. That's intense. And a lot of people have a struggle with that. Shame is a third component. And we all Mm -hmm. know about shame around addiction. And another one was abstinence. Um, Over 50, 60% of people in my study said that one of the main reasons they didn't go get help is because the quote was, I enjoyed using or drinking too much. Mm. Um, and everybody looked at those people as unmotivated. And I said, but they're not unmotivated. They're in the study. So mm-hmm. the only reason they found us is because they wanted to get help. What if there are people out there who want help, but they're just not ready to quit? Ah. And I realized there is nobody talking to those people. Right. And I said, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to leave my academic career. I'm going to figure out how to get more people into help. Mm-hmm. Because here's the thing. If we can use the same things we use right now, 10, 20, 30% success. Mm-hmm. But instead of only applying it to the handful of people who are actually going to get help right now, if we can switch that and make it so that 90% of people are willing to get help, we'll help nine times as many people. And I don't have to tell you, everybody knows the stats. More and more people are dying every single year. Um, we're losing more and more people to addiction. Mm-hmm. We're not stemming the tide. And, right. you know, for me, it's time for us to come up with innovative solutions instead of just trying to push more and more people into the same system we've been using for 100 years. Right. All right. Exactly. And so in doing that, um, when you began to think through how you were going to uh, create that model, what, um, what were some of your trial and error uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> methods that, uh, that you came upon? I love that. Um, So a lot of trial and error, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. I'm a doer. And so I jumped in. Um, There was another 
psychologist, a clinical psychologist in uh, LA doing harm reduction work mm -hmm. with drinkers primarily. And that doesn't happen a lot. There aren't a lot of people doing that work. So Dr. Mark Kern was um, this guy doing it. We started a conversation over a period of about a year or two. And then we joined forces to create what I believe still to this day, it was one of the most progressive outpatient addiction treatment centers in LA and the country. Uh, and the idea was to remove the abstinence barrier. You don't have to be willing to quit. You just have to be willing to come in and get help. Mm -hmm. Over a period of about five years, we helped over 200 people. It was a really amazing experience. Um, the only trouble is I didn't know how to run a business. I'd never run a business before. I was an academic. Mm -hmm. and, um, and we grew relatively fast. And the team grew. And, uh, you know, I didn't know anything about marketing. I didn't know anything about advertising or sales or any of the other things that are required to run a really successful business. So after about five years, we had to close. But we helped a few hundred people during that time. And mm. what I found more than anything was that we were definitely helping people who were not willing to go to other treatment centers. So that piece worked. Right. But when it closed, which was about three years ago, I had some time to think. And it was troubling. I mean, I was really committed to alternatives. I was really, really excited about what we were doing there. But I said to myself, well, let's get back to the drawing board, right? The abstinence removal thing works for people to get them in. Mm -hmm. But there were other barriers, right? There were cost, right, logistics, right. and shame. And I said, what can I do to remove all the barriers? Mm -hmm. How can we make it so easy? My joke is that I want help to be so easy. People can literally stumble into it, um, right? Mm -hmm. Like they can be messed up, drunk, high, whatever, yeah. and just stumble onto the help. That's how, that's how easy I want it to get. And that's so three years ago, we went online. Um, and I started offering essentially all the help online really honestly cutting the cost to 10, five to 10% of what it normally is making the logistics incredibly easy because people get help from us on their phone or on their laptop or on their tablet. Mm -hmm. um, and the shame is helpful, right? We, uh, we run groups, for instance, that's one of the things we can talk more about what we do, but one of the things we do is run groups. Mm -hmm. Some of the people show up to the groups with their video camera off. Some people don't talk with their voice. They just type. Mm -hmm. Why? Because they're ashamed. Mm -hmm. But if you, to walk into an AA meeting, to walk into a smart meeting, to walk into rehab, you've got mm -hmm. to call and make phone calls and show up and show your face. And we can think whatever we want of it, but that's too much for some people. So mm -hmm. over the last three years at Ignited, we've been able to help. We're almost at 500 people in three years. Wow. Um, it's been an incredibly exciting thing. I've never, I would have never been able to offer the kind of help that I can offer at Ignited. We're like, People get help from somewhere between a dollar a day and eight dollars a day. Like that's wow. That's all it costs to engage with us, you know. And yeah, and yeah. they get me, and they get other amazingly well-trained coaches that do incredible work. And it's really, really satisfying. You know, my goal is to get to the point where now, we're, right now, we're enrolling fifty to one hundred people a month. I want thousands of people a month to be able to get help for addiction without having to worry about the cost, the logistics, making fools of themselves, or being ashamed. Right. Well, and so you said one of the things that was appealing is the, um, is the, is the more relaxed model about abstinence regarding abstinence. Yeah. Um, and so how, how does that work? How, tell us about that because I can hear my, my base sure. <laughs> of, of folks and my own background, um, at, at one point early on, um, saying, well, um, how is that not just enabling 
sure. uh, an addict to continue to get to drink and have the best of both worlds and get his family off his back. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I love that. And let's make sure we hit each one of those points. Right. So I come from the motivational interviewing craft model of motivating people. And what I mean by that is this might be a newsflash to all of us. Uh, I hope it's not for you. You work in coaching. Right. We can't make anybody do anything. Totally. Let's be incredibly <laughs> clear about that. <laughs> I say that every blessed day. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, people say to me, how dare you tell people that it's okay to keep drinking? I said, I'm not telling them it's okay to keep drinking. What I tell people is you don't need to stop drinking to get help. Mm -hmm. um, because guess what? If I told them they do need to stop drinking to get help, what would happen? 90% right. of them wouldn't come. Mm -hmm. So the model of telling people, look, again, I'm not bashing AA. AA works for the people that it works for. It's just time for it to stop being the supposed only solution. Mm -hmm. um, the only requirement for membership in AA is to stop drinking. Mm -hmm. Well, what if you don't want to stop drinking? Mm -hmm. Then you are literally not allowed to participate. Now, yes, of course, there are people drinking in meetings and there are people showing up to meetings drunk. That's mm -hmm. fine, but language matters. Mm -hmm. And when you tell people that you only get to become a member of our group, if you have a desire to stop drinking, then all the people who are thinking about it, mm -hmm. all the people who recognize that drinking is a problem in their life, but they're not ready to quit, all the people who maybe aren't sure if drinking is a problem in their life and quitting is not even on their radar, you have just excluded them, period. It's like, I'm going to use a really bizarre example. They come to me sometimes when I have these conversations. I'm Jewish. Mm -hmm. If there's a country club that doesn't accept Jews as members, it doesn't matter what else you do. It doesn't matter if you have a Bible, like an Old Testament Bible in your library. It doesn't matter if you pretend that you're fine with it. You just told me you don't accept Jews into your membership. Mm -hmm. Screw you. I'm yeah. not part of your club. Yeah. So that's the first thing that, that let's just be honest about it. It turns people off. The mm -hmm. only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. Not everybody wants to stop drinking. You can call them in denial you can tell me that they're not serious, but I don't really care about that. I'm here to stop people from dying. Mm -hmm. So your judgments, and I don't mean yours purposely, I mean right. the, the big you, right. um, other people's judgments about what people should want and what they should be ready for and what they must commit to, I don't mm -hmm. care about that. I, right. My suggestion to people is this. And the reason, so the book is called The Abstinence Myth. And in my opinion, there are two myths about abstinence. First of all, abstinence, should not be the gatekeeper for recovery. Mm -hmm. You should not have to commit to abstinence before you, uh, you get help. It's mm -hmm. actually insane. Like the, the, when, I, when I do these interviews, I talk about examples. Imagine if when you need a physical therapy, like let's say you lost your legs. Mm -hmm. Imagine if you need a physical therapy and the physical therapist said, hey, um, I you know you got your prosthetics and so that's great. I will absolutely do physical therapy with you but you can't bring your wheelchair into the office. You have to walk into my office. And if you can walk into my office, then I will do physical therapy with you. Mm -hmm. Sounds insane. The only reason I'm coming to your office is because I need help learning how to walk. Mm -hmm. Or imagine if you went to get help uh, with a therapist for depression. And they said, look, I'll totally help you with your depression, but I need a commitment that you're not going to be depressed anymore. <laughs> Unless you're willing to commit to not be depressed anymore, I can't work with you. Right. It sounds insane. People look at me like I'm crazy when they hear the, the thing and they, they try to come up with other options as to why it's not the same. But it is the same. Somebody who has an alcohol problem is struggling with alcohol. Mm -hmm. 
how dare we say to them, well, you have to commit to not drinking before we help them. This is the thing that a lot of people misunderstand about the work that I do. More than half of the people I work with choose to abstain. Mm-hmm. We're not saying abstinence is not a good option. Mm-hmm. I'm saying I'm not going to require abstinence for you to get help. So that's number one. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I think it's high time we stop using abstinence as the way to measure whether people are successful in recovery. Um, okay. I don't really know where it came that we decided somehow that um, how many days abstinent in a row you have is the criteria for whether you are um, a successful you know, person to successful recovery or not. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, it creates massive amounts of shame the moment people slip up. Mm-hmm. Because technically, according to that measure, if, if all you measure it is by how many days abstinence in a row you have, somebody who had three years mm-hmm. and has a sip of beer or a six-pack or a bottle of vodka over a weekend mm-hmm. is essentially in the exact same place as somebody who just walked into the room. And that's something I was in the room for three years. That's something people say verbatim. Mm-hmm. Over and over and over, you know, you're a newcomer, you're back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. That's not how life works. Right. You collected a lot of knowledge and a lot of experience and a lot of support and, and a lot during those three years that you had recovery. Mm-hmm. Just because you had a bad weekend or a bad month does not send you back to the beginning. Imagine if that's how it worked in any other area in life. Right. But you slipped up at work and they go, well, you got to go back to the mailroom. I know you were the CEO. <laughs> all right. Delivery time for you again. Yeah. It's insane. And, right. and so that's when I talk about the, uh, the abstinence myth, what I'm saying is we somehow made abstinence the most important part of recovery, but it's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not the only one. There are a lot of people in the academic world that are pushing the concept that overall quality of life should be the measure of recovery. Mm-hmm. Yes, drinking can be in there. Mm-hmm. But it's not just how many days abstinence you have. It's how much drinking do you do? Mm-hmm. I had a client, maybe I, if I can give a story, I think this story really reflects the first time this hit me smack in the face. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we had a client in the online program who was a blackout daily drinker. Drank the blackout every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, he came to engage in the program. And after about four to five months, he sent me this email. And in the email, he says, you know, he told me about some other things about his life. He was applying for a new job and all this stuff. He said, things are going really, really well. When it comes to drinking, I'm really happy over the period of the, the program. So about over a period of five months, he drank four times. And during those four times, he said, two of them went exactly as planned. And in two of them, I drank more than I intended to, but I didn't black out. And um, I don't consider that a failure because I used to be a daily blackout drinker. Mm-hmm. So I celebrated this email as a success. Obviously, I took his name out, but I celebrated the email as a success. And I literally, I got emails and comments from people saying, how dare you suggest to this guy, this alcoholic, which is another issue I have, mm-hmm. how dare you suggest to this alcoholic that his drinking is okay? And I went, wait, this guy used to drink to blackout every day of the week. Mm-hmm. There are seven days in the week. And he, um, you know, about 30 days in a month and he was with us for five months. That's about a thousand days that he would have drank the blackout, Mm -hmm. but he drank on four of those days. And just to help people with math, that's half a percent. Mm -hmm. He scored a 99.95 in abstinence Mm -hmm. in any other area of the universe. 
mm-hmm. we would celebrate this guy. We would throw a parade for him. Right. That's a but hell of a somehow, test score. Yeah. But somehow in recovery, he was held as a failure. And mm-hmm. this is what we do to people. Mm-hmm. There are people listening right now who've had great periods of success in their recovery and they've had slip ups. And when you have the slip up, you feel like a failure. But mm-hmm. this is life. Mm-hmm. Life is full of ups and downs and falls and scrapes. And then you get back up. How is it that we've somehow weirdly decided that in this area of life, if you slip up, you've failed and you have to go back to the beginning and start over? I think it's, I think it's one of the reasons why 90% of people don't go get help because they understand the weight of the expectation of perfection. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm not willing to put it on them. I want to create an open door policy mm-hmm. where anyone, anyone who wants help can walk in at whatever level they're ready to walk in at, mm-hmm. get whatever help is there and have people support them through their growth and their expansion, not judge them if things don't go perfectly. Yeah. And Dr. Jaffe, how will you approach someone when you see that for whatever reason, um, well, let me ask it this way. Have you found people that it just is not possible for them to um, even entertain um, drinking at all? And therefore, oh my God, of course. Of yes, course. of course. So, of course. so when, when you have that individual that is um, trying to still convince themselves or um, continue to use alcohol in the way that um, they have in the past, but less, um, and it's becoming apparent that that's just not a possibility, even how do you, how do you, um, how do you take them into this causality place yeah. where, you know, the root causes begin to get addressed? I love it. So we actually pretty much only focus on the root cause, to be honest. And mm-hmm. again, my background is in neuroscience and statistics to some extent in psychology. And so one of the things we learn in neuroscience is not engaging in something doesn't change the behavior. Let me explain what I mean. Um, let's say you learned to ride a bicycle mm-hmm. years ago and you haven't gotten on a bike in 10 years. The reason everybody says that it's like riding a bike, which means you can just jump right back into it. Even if you haven't done it in a while is your body learned how to ride a bicycle. And so it has a memory. It has the knowledge of how to do that. When you don't, ride a bike for 5, 10, 15 years, it doesn't lose that knowledge because the way your brain works is memories are actually physical things. Not a lot of people understand this, but memories are actually physical things. They're structures, network structures in your brain. Right. And so not drinking doesn't change anything about your life. It just doesn't. Mm -hmm. It changes other people's perception of your life. (laughs) (laughs) And other people will get off your back as you stop drinking. Mm -hmm. But in terms of your ability to cope better, in terms of how you perceive yourself, in terms of what you know how to do and where you're going in life and all those things, not drinking, the act of not drinking mm-hmm. doesn't help with that. Mm-hmm. It helps you function better. It helps your health, right? Because it's not uh, filling you full of toxins, et cetera. But we all know, I, again, I talk about this heavily in the free workshop I give every single week, but we know that people don't drink because they like alcohol. Let's, right. let's just be honest about it. People drink because they like the effect the alcohol gives them. Mm-hmm. Alcohol tastes, tastes terrible. That's why we have to make mixed drinks because it's so horribly 
disgusting. <laughs> but we have to we have to avoid the taste. We want the effect. Yeah. Well, why do we like the effect? We like the effect because it covers something up for a lot of us. Mm-hmm. This is not true. Nothing is true for 100% of people, but this is true for the vast majority of people. For me, it was social anxiety. Um, when I was 14 years old, I'm still a little socially anxious, but when I was 14, I was incredibly socially anxious. I felt relatively worthless and I didn't really feel like other people connected with me, etc. I was in a sleepaway camp. Somebody handed me a bottle of vodka. I knew I'm not supposed to drink, but I also was socially anxious, anxious. So I wasn't going to say no in front of all these kids and make a fool of myself. But I didn't know what alcohol was going to give me. I had three or four drinks. And next thing you know, I'm not nervous. Mm-hmm. I can talk to girls. Um, I'm not weirded out by what all the guys are thinking about me, et cetera. So I felt more comfortable than I ever have. Mm-hmm. Alcohol fixed the anxiety in my head. Therefore, I liked alcohol, right? It's different for different people. Uh, there are more that, it's more than just that one issue that drove me to using alcohol, et cetera. But the idea that removing alcohol will help mm-hmm. is just not true. Mm-hmm. I had to work on my social anxiety. I had to feel like I'm more worthy. I had to feel like a more whole person and care less about what people thought about me and learn how to live as the best version of a D that I could. That's what we work with people on. And mm-hmm. you're right. There are definitely people who are so heavily dependent on coping through their substance use um, that it's an uphill battle. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in the strictest of ways, right? Like, they seem like they're serious about doing the work, and yet they keep leaning on the bottle. I get it. Yeah. What I think is the misnomer, the misunderstanding, is that those people, if told, well, you have to stop drinking, that they would stop drinking. We all have to reach a moment where we understand the relationship we have to our destructive behaviors and our our more um, constructive behaviors in life Mm -hmm. and make a decision and reach accountability. Mm -hmm. My belief is that through motivational interviewing, craft methods, and more collaborative therapeutic relationships, people Mm -hmm. are more likely to reach that result because I've had people come to me to reduce their drinking, Mm -hmm. and they do. Mm -hmm but they realize that even with the reduced amount of drinking, they're not getting where they want to. And so they decide to stop. Or I've had people who come to me because they want to reduce their drinking and they realize they can't Mm -hmm. because whenever they have a drink, they have five and whenever they have five, they do stupid stuff and, and they, they catch. And so then now, but but now we're in conversation and I go, man, this doesn't seem to be working. What do we do? Mm-hmm. And motivational interviewing is all about getting the client to come up with the motivation, not me trying to somehow falsely create the need and the, the decision for them. Exactly. Leading them to the place where they see the unwanted consequences and what they're willing to do and, and experience and, and actually have hope that life can be different if they yeah. give up this thing. So much. I mean, you know, I'm sure you have dozens of these kinds of stories as well, but I have a client right now. I feel really bad for him. We got things were moving in the right direction. Mm-hmm. He got a job for the first time in about a year or two and slowly getting on his feet. Hadn't gotten the alcohol completely under, under control, but it was much, much better than it had been for years. And then Corona hit. Mm-hmm. And then he finds himself alone in his apartment with nothing to do. Right on the precipice of having gotten his first job in a while and starting to get things in order, but now that's gone. Do I really blame that guy for 
finding his solace in a bottle? I don't. Mm -hmm. And I know for a fact that me saying to him, you have to stop drinking and you have to go to this place every Tuesday. I know for a fact that me doing that to him would not only not help him, but likely detach him from even getting whatever support he's getting right now mm -hmm. because he knows what he's doing. Yeah. Um, and so my hope is that by being more compassionate, more empathetic with people, we will help them find their own solutions. Exactly. Well, before we get away and all our time gets gone, I want to talk about sex. <laughs> sure. Because let's talk about sex. Let's talk about sex. Because unwanted compulsive sexual behaviors are um, are something that um, are plaguing, you know, how many people and and. So how, and, and I know you work within this area as well, right? So, yes. um, so explain to me and our listeners how these principles might be applied to somebody who's coming in and acting out in ways that they regret on a regular basis, or there's a relationship to porn that is compulsive. And so tell me how you would approach uh, someone in that situation. Absolutely. And thank you for asking the question. Um, by the way, when it comes to sex and food addictions, it's definitely the one place where people understand that abstinence is not the solution, right? <laughs> right. Um, which is yeah. why I love, which is why I love the duality of the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, so here's the thing: any rewarding behavior can become compulsive, right? But it becomes compulsive in my orientation. It becomes compulsive because it serves another purpose. Mm -hmm. So. Porn is not addictive just because of porn, although technology has made porn so rewarding so quickly and so easy to access mm -hmm. that it becomes like a, like a shortcut to intimacy. Mm -hmm. And I'll explain, I'll explain it in my own life, right? When I was young, and like I said, I had social anxiety and things of that nature, mm -hmm. talking to girls and making myself vulnerable and potentially up for rejection or embarrassment, um, that was tough. Mm -hmm. porn gave me what I wanted all the time. Right. I could turn it on the, back in the, this is in the days of VHS for those of you who are uh, old enough <laughs> to remember that. Um, now it would be a web, um, a URL, but I could go there. It would deliver the same thing every time mm -hmm. I could count on it. It would never talk back to me. It would never embarrass me. It would never tell other people. So porn created this really bizarre excitement slash shame storm in my head for years. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize, and it, I didn't realize this until my early to mid thirties, that actually even all my drug and alcohol use were really around intimacy and sex. Mm -hmm. um, I felt so uncomfortable with intimacy and, and feelings that I needed some alcohol or drugs to cover that up so I could relate better to people. The same with sex and the same with intimately connecting with a partner. And so to me, all the sex addictions are essentially deeply ingrained intimacy disorders related to trauma, related to the attachment you had in your family when you grew up, related to early bullying experiences or shameful, intimate experiences you have when you're growing up, where people found coping, just like with alcohol, just like with drugs, coping through these behaviors. Mm -hmm. If I pay for sex, I don't have to worry about embarrassment. I get what I want whenever I want it to, whatever, all that rationale. Mm -hmm. The thing that's hard about it is when you avoid those behaviors, you're still left disconnected from intimacy right 
you're still left without the connection and the shame that that brings on. We are social animals. We need to have people around us. So the shame that that brings on builds up and builds up and people white knuckle it and go, I don't need to watch porn today or I'm not going to go and pay for sex or whatever their proclivity is. Mm -hmm. And they hold on and they hold on until the stress gets too much and they're too isolated or they feel too anxious and then they go right back to it. Just like with drug and alcohol use. Mm -hmm. Again, the, the fix is not to have them stop doing those things. They might need to stop doing those things, mm -hmm. but the fix is to reduce the shame around it. The fix is to stop being so uh, secretive and hide everything. Mm -hmm. The fix is to help people learn how to connect intimately and show real vulnerability and be able to discuss their emotions. And I can actually have a free give me for your audience for that um, before I leave here today. Yeah. The fix is to help people with intimacy disorders learn how to connect intimately. And then you don't need to run to porn. I used to be a daily, I mean, every day, probably from the time I was 14, 15, to my early to mid 30s, porn mm -hmm. consumer. Mm -hmm. I haven't watched porn alone. And I think we just talked about it the other day. I think it's been eight years. Wow. That's not to say I haven't watched porn. My wife and I have every once in a while watched it together. Mm -hmm. But I don't watch it alone. And it's not an issue anymore, but it's not an issue anymore because of all the other work that I've done, not only because I stopped the porn. Mm -hmm. And so I think sex addiction is actually a great way to talk about it because it's so destructive to relationships. It brings on infidelity and divorce and so many terrible, terrible things in people's lives. And by the way, exacerbates drug and alcohol issues as well, right? And right. so um, right. sex addiction to me is absolutely one of those places where we can do really, really deep work with people. It's one of the most shameful sides of addiction. Mm -hmm. It's a complete taboo. People never want to talk about it. We've seen it destroy lives of celebrities and people all around us. Mm -hmm. um, and so I talk about it a little bit in the abstinence myth because it's some of my experience, but it's absolutely one of those places where we know, wait, not having sex will not fix anybody's sex addiction. That mm -hmm. cannot be the fix. Mm -hmm. And so I think it, it mirrors the conversation we just had around sex because uh, around drugs, I mean, because you have to find a different solution. The solution can't be, well, if you have a food addiction problem, you don't eat. And if you have a sex addiction problem, you never have sex. That can't be the solution. Right. So what you have to do is change the relationship you have to those things and find other and more adaptive and better coping strategies for yourself. Yeah. And, and I want to talk too about stigma because you have a, um, you have a little bit of a reaction to the word um, addict or alcoholic or sex addict. I mean, I, I pick up that you do and I've read some of your I materials. Do. And so I'd love for you to talk to us about um, uh, stigma. Um, sure. What, how are like, you said earlier, you know, language matters, words matter, and they totally do. I totally agree as a writer and a person that uses, try to, tries to use careful language about mm -hmm. how I describe things. Um, so, so please unpack that for us. Please. Yeah. So let me first explain the difference between stigma and shame. Stigma is the negative connotation, the negative um, labeling associated with specific words and groups in particular. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't have to go very far and I know you're in Nashville. And so, um, you know, in different parts of the world, in different parts of the country, belonging to certain groups is stigmatized. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll use some of the words I can and I won't use some of the words that I can't, but you know, being gay it has been stigmatized for many, many years. The, mm -hmm. the, the gay queer community has been fighting that for decades, if right. not centuries. Right. Um, being black 
stigmatized. Mm-hmm. Um, stigma is the negative connotation associated with being part of that group, the judgment that's associated. That's stigma. Mm-hmm. Shame is the feeling that comes up when you're stigmatized against. Mm-hmm. So when you are made to feel like you are less than, when you are made to feel like you are worthless or worthless, when you are mm-hmm. made to feel like you don't belong and who you are, not what you do, but who you are mm-hmm. is not good enough for society, you feel shame. Right. And shame is a very basic emotion that is made to make people conform. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it comes from the times where if you didn't do what we needed you to do, and if you didn't behave in the way that applies to our tribe or our small groups, mm-hmm. it put the rest of us it put the rest of us at risk. And mm-hmm. so getting ostracized, being removed from the group was the risk of not fitting in. Mm-hmm. Now we all remember, we all know the anybody who struggled with addiction knows the feeling of shame. We mm-hmm. know the feeling of not belonging. We know the feeling of not being the same. We know the feeling of not being worthy. Mm-hmm. I wear a bracelet. I don't know how you do with swearing, so I won't swear, but it says F shame on it, just the full word. Yeah. Um, and I have to remind myself every time that I feel shame that it is my job to fight against that shame because shame mm-hmm. keeps me not being the best version of myself, mm-hmm. keeps me feeling less than worthless, etc. Mm-hmm. So, so that's the starting point of the conversation. Now, people in recovery can say whatever they want to say to me about how they feel about being called an alcoholic or an addict. But when you first start dealing with the problem, being called an alcoholic or an addict is shameful. It just mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. There is a body of literature on it now. You can go look it up. I'm not the only one saying it. Even Dr. John Kelly, who's one of the writers of the new review that everybody in AA is touting is showing that AA is actually really effective. Mm-hmm. Um, even he has papers on the stigma related to the title of addict, alcoholic, etc. Right. Sure. If you've been in AA for 15 years sober and you've been getting used to calling yourself an addict and an alcoholic every day, it is now part of your recovered identity. Mm-hmm. And so you, you're not ashamed about it anymore because you've created a different reality for it. But no offense, I don't care about you. You're not one of the people I'm trying to help. I care mm-hmm. about the people who are out there looking for help and It's been shown over and over and over. Calling somebody an alcoholic stigmatizes them and shames them. Mm -hmm. The the association people have with the word alcoholic is not really motivated, highly successful people who do a lot and you can count on them. It's the opposite of all those things. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when you call somebody an alcoholic, you're calling them an unmotivated piece of you-know-what who's good Mm -hmm. for nothing and only cares about drinking and you can't trust them. Mm -hmm. And whether that's what you mean with the word or not doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. What matters is how the words gets accepted. And so we have to understand that when we go to somebody, well, you're an alcoholic, we throw an entire blanket, a wet mm-hmm. blanket of judgment at them. Right. And, you know, again, I disagree with the, with the idea that addicts are in denial or, and I put addicts in quotation marks for those of you who uh, can't see the audio version of this. <laughs> um, People are not in denial. People know that what they're doing is destroying their life. The shame that they're feeling about it is making them lie about it because they have to save face, because they have to look better than they are, because they have to pretend like things are okay when they're not. Mm -hmm. I've never met a resistant person in the sense that they don't recognize they have a problem. I've met Mm -hmm. a ton of people who don't want to be called addicts and alcoholics. I've met a ton of people who are not sure that they have to never use again, but I've never met a person who comes to me. And when I say to them, well, 
it looks like maybe there's a little struggle with alcohol going on here. I've never met somebody who goes, no, 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 I'm, my alcohol drinking is fine. That's never happened. Mm-hmm. And I've dealt with thousands of people. So you don't need to call somebody an alcoholic to make them believe they need help. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been research on this and you can look it up. People can yeah. look it up. Yeah. This shows that we need to stop using these terms. Mm-hmm. It's, they're not useful. Mm-hmm. Yes, again, sure. Decades into recovery, years into recovery, they lose their judgment. But look at how hard of a time we're having getting people into years or decades in recovery. If people in AA or in other um, self-help groups related to the 12 steps are telling me that without calling themselves addicts and alcoholics, somehow they would lose value in their recovery, then I question the recovery that they're in. Mm -hmm. If the only value you're finding in your recovery or a major value you're finding in your recovery is the title alcoholic and addict, then I think we need to find some better things for you because that label also ties you to your old negative behavior. Yeah. And when you've had 20, 30 years of recovery, tying yourself to how you used to screw life up 20, 30 years ago, I think is a very, very, very dangerous thing to do. And yeah. so when we're, if we're going to be careful about language, we should be intentional about it. Mm-hmm. We should say to people, look, you have a drinking problem or you're struggling with alcohol see how many people who struggle with the title alcoholic struggle Mm -hmm. with the notion that they have a problem with drinking. Mm -hmm. I would argue, and I don't know if if you have some uh, input on this, but I would argue that there are a lot less people who fight back against saying, Hey, I think you got a problem with drinking. Mm -hmm. than there are people who say, Hey, I think you're an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about um, substance use disorder? I think it's fine. I think, giving a label to the disorder is okay. If you really want to, again, you know, what's funny is people are not their disorder. Mm -hmm. They're just not. And so Mm -hmm. I think it it serves a role clinically. Mm -hmm. It lets you know what to put on a piece of paper. And if you get insurance reimbursement helps in that sense, Mm -hmm. but somebody is not a substance use disorder, right? They may have a substance use disorder. Right, right. Exactly. Just like yeah. I have allergies to, to dust. I'm not an allergic human. Like that's not, that's not mm-hmm. how I identify as a person. Yeah. I just think we need to, we need to move away from identifying the person by their struggles because just mm-hmm. listen to the words as they come out of my mouth. If we identify a person by their struggles, mm-hmm. how are they ever going to leave that place? Mm-hmm. We've, we've now put them in a box that mm-hmm. says you are this issue, not you have an issue, but rather you are this issue. Right, right. Dr. Jeffy, I could talk to you for another hour about all this stuff. I wish we had it. Um, we can thank do it again you. Sometime. Well, absolutely. I want you to come back. Um, how do people get in touch with you and how can we connect people with what you're doing um, so that they can benefit from some of these uh, materials that you have and groups and all of that. Awesome. So first of all, like I said, um, I've got a freebie for you guys. If you go to ignited.com forward slash feelings wheel, and I'm sure David can put this in the notes as well, ignited.com forward slash feelings wheel. I did a whole workshop. I think it's about an hour, hour and a half on how to talk about emotional reaction, how to be vulnerable. Uh, I think most of us have never been trained in this. We don't know that this is even a thing. I introduce you to the feelings wheel and show you how to use it so that you can talk about what's going on inside. Mm -hmm. Um, When we feel like we can't talk about it is when we suffer the most. So that's number one. You get that for free. It's just there. Um, 
I also mentioned to you, we're starting a program for family members of people who struggle with addiction. Yes. The reason I think this is important is there's this false model that's been created, by the way, partially because the model up to now has been, you have a disease, we got to fix your disease, and then everything will get better. But addiction is not a biological only disorder that exists only within the person. It's a biological, psychological, environmental, spiritual condition. And so that means that there, in addition to the biology inside the human, there are psychological issues, environmental issues, and spiritual issues. Well, guess what? Family, environment, your job, all those other things are part of the struggle then. Early life trauma, lack of boundaries, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So many people who come to me are family members and they say, how do I get my loved one to want to get help? Well, Normally, the family needs to understand the overall structure of addiction better and know what to do in a, in a much deeper way. So literally at the end of May 2020, we're starting a family program. It's called a Family SOS program. And I have a link for you guys that people can go to tell me if they're interested in it. Uh, it's a bit.ly link. So bit.ly.com, if you know what bit.ly is, forward slash, all caps, FAM help, F-A-M help. Okay. And we'll put that link in there for you. Thank um, you. Yeah, that's going to be a program not for the people who struggle per se, but for their family members to understand what's going on a little bit more. And then last but not least, I can't help but talk about what we mainly do at Ignited, which is we have such an in-depth, amazing online program for anybody who's struggling, literally for as little as $1.50 a day to as much as $8 a day. Um, pretty amazing wraparound help that you know, it's really meant to give access to people who are either not able to afford or not ready to engage in sort of traditional treatment. Although we've also had people who've gone to rehab four, five, 10, 15, 20 times, mm -hmm. and it didn't work. And they're just looking for another option. And that's available at ignitedrecovery.com. Right. And you've got a great podcast, uh, Ignited uh, Podcast, I-G-N-T-D. Yeah. Um, and uh, that as a, a wife, uh, a, a podcast you and your wife do together quite often. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So every Wednesday it's my wife and I, and every Friday it's me talking about mental health and recovery. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dr. Jaffe, it has been a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for making the time. I thank you so much. David. So, so appreciate it. And uh, listeners, thank you for being with us. Nate will join us next week. And, um, Please uh, take advantage of these materials. Uh, they're out there. We put this stuff out there so that you can have lots of alternatives to explore where you need to be, where you fit into this whole conversation uh, about recovery and what it's going to look like for you personally. So, Amen. Dr. Jaffe, thank you again. And listeners, we will see you next time on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. See you, everyone. The Positive Sobriety Podcast is recorded at Crossroads for the Nations in Brentwood, Tennessee. Live producer Rex Schnelli, music by Rex Schnelli, theme music by Matt Ulrich, uh, hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett, uh, wardrobe <laughs> by Kathy Gifford.